For KOSU News, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. A new alcohol distribution law is facing a challenge in the state Supreme Court. Senate Bill 608 requires manufacturers of the top 25 brands to offer products to every wholesaler. But opponents say it violates state question 792 passed in 2016, allowing manufacturers to designate which wholesalers would handle their products. Ryan, why would opponents not want the top brands going to all wholesalers? Well, I mean, there are a variety of reasons. And and first, before we delve into this, this is, you know, alcohol laws and distribution laws in the state of Oklahoma are one of the most complex, convoluted (laughs) areas of... And so, you know, I, I feel like I have an understanding of what's happening here, understanding of how everything works and how it used to work. Boy, that's going to take way more than we've got time for on this week in Oklahoma <laughs> politics. But one of, there are a lot of reasons why they want to control which distributors uh, and wholesalers are, are putting out their product. A lot of it's quality control. You know, they want to be able to, or intellectual property rights. They want to have licensing agreements that can, uh, if you're a manufacturer, you want to be able to control everything in, in some instances. I mean, temperature controls, you know, where it's going, you know, packaging, placement. Um, you know, there are a variety of things that you want to negotiate. And if you're just required to you know, put it out to uh, your top 25 selling brands without any of those negotiations, you lose that. And right. you know, looking at the pleadings here, I mean, the Oklahoma Constitution was amended with the state question, overwhelming vote of the voter, uh, overwhelming support of the voters back in uh, to, uh, 2016, and now or, or 2018, uh, and now we're looking at the, you know the state constitution now, Article 28A, uh, up against Senate Bill 608. I mean, they're in direct conflict with one another. I mean, we've seen this in the past where the legislature has tried to come back and amend something that the voters have done at the ballot box. Sometimes they can do that. If you if the if a state question amends a statute, they get to come back and amend that. But this is the Constitution. And here, if you look at the, the language of those two things, they're in conflict or they seem to be in direct conflict. When that happens, the Constitution wins. And even with the Constitution, is that usually the, the vote will of the voters is really what the Supreme Court always, almost always takes into mind. Absolutely, and Ryan's right. 66% of the voters approved uh, the state question. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a narrow margin. And it really, as you said, I mean, it's about the fact that they view their brand as being their most valuable asset. And if you're the supplier uh, you, that they believe, I mean, the essence of the state question was that you should have the right uh, to choose whether you uh, whether you deal with one wholesaler or all wholesalers. And so I think all of these issues really, I mean, the court is going to uh, ultimately be the, you know, be uh, the ones to decide this, but it is convoluted. And I think mm-hmm. even from a legislative perspective, when you get some of these bills as they move through the process, it, it becomes very difficult, I think, even for lawmakers to kind of uh, dissect and figure out uh, really what the, what the competing arguments are. So so uh, it'll be fascinating to watch and see what the court does. And this really had problems in this the, this this season this session when one wholesaler was was accused of paying not as a lobbyist but just simply as a business owner. Well, and you know, there are a lot of stories over that, and then ultimately came to the the point that apparently the individual wasn't a lobbyist principal, and and so you know everything was on the up and up. But yeah, I mean this there there are a lot of politics here. There's a lot of money at stake here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's a lot of money at stake whenever we're talking about alcohol and alcohol distribution in the state of Oklahoma. Um, you know, if you look, you know, to some inside baseball on these pleadings here, uh, you have Robert McCampbell and Kent Myers, 
you know, two of the, the most prolific lawyers whenever it comes to ballot measures and, and defending uh, ballot measures or opposing ballot measures, everything from getting signatures to going to a court whenever uh, they are challenged, yeah. they're on the same team here. And so when you've got Robert McCampbell and, and Kent Myers on the, on the same side of a pleading, I mean, I think that that tells you where this and is stacking up. They're, they're, the they're, de- they're defending law. the Constitution here. Yeah. They're challenging this new state law saying uh, that it violates the, the will of the people and it violates the Constitution of the state of Oklahoma as it was amended by that ballot measure. Recent flooding and storms bring national political figures to the Sooner State. On Sunday, Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke visited with Tulsa flood victims. And on Tuesday, Vice President Mike Pence came to Tulsa to promise aid to flood victims and pack some boxes at the Community Food Bank of Eastern Oklahoma. Neva, what did you think of these visitors? Well, I think uh, I think it's always good when you have folks uh, come in and see from the national side what's going on, get the get the firsthand view, understand and recognize that the need for for, for the funds to come and come quickly uh, is is paramount. And I think uh, obviously from a presidential candidate standpoint, I mean it's an opportunity not only to be in a state and have the uh, have the opportunity not only to talk to voters, you know, in in this particular instance, but also deal with the with the activist party side as well as as we saw on Sunday. But the other the other element to this is that I think it does uh, it does say that from the Oklahoma perspective, when you see the congressional delegation, when you see yeah. the uh, the federal the federal side starting to mesh with uh, the governor and and all of the. Uh, uh, administra- administration side in Oklahoma, that we are seeing good, quick results, which hasn't always been the case in some disasters across the country. So I think for Oklahoma, it sets up well, hopefully, to get the kind of relief and uh, support financially and otherwise that we need and, and that we need quickly. Yeah, Ryan. Well, this is all in the backdrop of a, a huge uh, federal disaster aid pra- package that had been stalled for weeks in and Congress finally and finally got passed on Monday. And so we're, we're hopefully now going to see some of this much-needed money coming into the state of Oklahoma and other states that have been affected by natural disasters. I mean, this was a, a really strange uh, issue with the federal aid package because most of the time those things sail through. I mean, you may have a, a few recalcitrant folks out there saying, you know, we, we shouldn't rebuild in certain areas or we shouldn't. But this really became a proxy fight for the border wall. And even Republicans and Republican leadership became frustrated with a segment of the Republican uh, Republicans in Congress for holding this up and saying that this represented the new normal and that it was just simply untenable to think that this was the way that we were going to deal with federal disaster aid moving forward. So all of that was in the context of these two visits. You know, the the other part of this that I think is, is really important is to think that you know, now, you know, and you heard Beto talking about, uh, you know, whenever he was a, a congressperson in El, El Paso, you know, that El Paso was often um, overlooked in the national conversation. And he didn't want o- Oklahoma to be overlooked. Right. He's talking about that kind of in this context of a general election. Well, he's not going to get Oklahoma's electoral votes, even if he's a, <laughs> even if he's the nominee. But really, what it speaks to is the fact that every state now is important in that Democratic primary. In a in a primary field as crowded as this one, every state's important. Every delegate's important. And so, you know, Beto coming to Oklahoma, we're going to, you know, I'm sure that we're going to see many more candidates, especially on the Democratic side. And this side, is not his first time to yeah, Oklahoma. Yeah, coming to Oklahoma, raising money and trying to get votes and delegates here. And to that point, it also when Vice President Pence comes, it shines that the national media is going to follow. With him, and so it shines the national light onto uh, Oklahoma and and some of the needs of, of Tulsa and, and, and not, Eastern Oklahoma. That's right, and not only was the vice president uh, and and uh, the second lady here, but you had the acting home 
Homeland Security Secretary. Mm-hmm. You had the acting FEMA uh, administrator. So, I mean, they brought a large contingency of folks uh, to see firsthand what was going on here in Oklahoma, and I think that's good news. Yeah, and we've we've seen a lot of national news from Oklahoma, but probably not enough. I mean, I, I think that you know there there is some sense that we're overlooked here in the middle of the country. And, you know, whenever I when I talk to colleagues outside of Oklahoma, they have some sense that, you know, what we've experienced in the last month has been bad. But I think the the enormity of the the effect that it's having and that will continue to have for months, if not years to come on Oklahoma's economy and people's lives. You know, that story needs to be told more. The Cherokee Nation elects a new principal chief. The tribe's former Secretary of State, Chuck Hoskin, Jr., won the election on Sunday to succeed Bill John Baker. The election came after a lot of mudslinging and one candidate getting disqualified by the tribal high court. Ryan, this was a pretty heated battle. Pretty heated battle, but then a decisive victory. I mean, yeah. and, and whenever and uh, you talk to folks in the Cherokee Nation, election results normally aren't out that fast. Uh, and so, you know, I I think I the word was posted around one two a.m. in the morning. Uh, the so Sunday morning the, after the Saturday election. That was a pretty quick uh, a de- a de- declaration of victory because you know the margins were just there. I mean, I think he had somewhere around 57% of the vote. So even after this very acrimonious campaign, uh, to have that kind of a decisive victory is incredibly impressive for Chief-elect Hoskin. Um, and he's used that as an opportunity to say we've he's recognized that it was a hard-fought campaign, uh, that there was a lot of mudslinging uh, going back and forth, that there's you know the last-minute drama of the disqualification mm-hmm. of uh, you know probably the most formidable challenger to uh, to Chief-elect Hoskin. He still got 14% of the vote. And he still got 14% of the vote yeah. in the absentee because he was on that absentee ballot that was uh, mailed out. That We're talking about walking stick there mm-hmm. is the, the other candidate. Um, you know, those are those. That's that's where I think you know uh, Chief Electoskin has really said he's acknowledged it. It was a tough fought race, but it's a time for everybody to come together now, and he's got that kind of a mandate. And if you look at the the council now, he's going to have you know probably anywhere from ten to twelve votes out of a fifteen member council after all of the runoffs are said and uh, said and uh, done and said with uh, at the end of I think July August that'll be wrapped up, and we'll have a sense of what that council actually looks like. But out of fifteen members, and he's going to have ten to twelve you know solid allies on that council. So. Uh, expect big things out of Chief Lechtoskin and, you know, uh, Bill John Baker, tremendous job as chief of the Cherokee Nation. Uh, and, you know, thanks to his service there. Neva. I, I would agree. I mean, I think when you have a decisive win, 57, 58 uh, percent in a very contentious race. And I think we've seen that in many of these uh, uh, in many of these races uh, in recent times where they have been much more aggressive, much more hard, hard fought. And uh, uh, out of this, when you have the opportunity with a with a clear mandate, as you said, I mean, to be able to move forward and move forward quickly, it will uh, it will put the focus on this transition. And I think uh, uh, when all is said and done, there is the opportunity to make some fairly significant changes. Governor Stitt pulls from the private sector for the next leader at the Department of Human Services. Villaggio Senior Living CEO Justin Brown is replacing Ed Lake, who held the job for nearly seven years. Brown will be the head of the largest state agency, which regulates, among other things, assisted living centers like those owned by Justin Brown. Neva, is there any concern of conflicts of interest here? I don't think so, and I think I think that was I think that was addressed right up front, and I think uh, uh, pretty well put to rest. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any indication of that whatsoever. I think what we have is the governor making a selection, as he pointed out, someone who is a strong organizational leader, a proven problem solver, and also 
someone who has the passion to really deal with the uh, uh, with this state's largest agency and the delivery of these services uh, that people depend on that are uh, in the Department of Human Services. So I think that uh, I think it will be a, a very uh, a very interesting to watch as a new management team comes in uh, clearly uh, with uh, a philosophy that I think uh, mirrors what the governor wants in terms of making uh, making the technology changes, uh, making the changes to make it much more uh, consumer and customer friendly, as they often describe it, but making these agencies much more responsive uh, to the folks that they're serving uh, throughout the state of Oklahoma. And this is certainly, as the state's largest agency, as you say, with with offices in all 77 counties, a $2 billion budget. I mean, it's a big thing to wrap, uh, kind of wrap your uh, arms around, so to speak, as as a new administrator and head of this agency. And I think it will be something that uh, folks, uh, as they step back and watch, will will have a great deal of interest. The Pinnacle Plan, obviously, is a component of this and where, where all of that sets up. But uh, you've got a 40-year-old, uh, very young, dynamic, uh, uh, proven leader who uh, is uh, taking the helm, and I think it will be... Uh, uh, it will be very uh, uh, refreshing to watch and see what happens in that agency. Right. It may be just as important as the decision that was made to replace Ed Lake at uh, DHS is the, the decisions that haven't been made yet. And, you know, in particular, the Department of Corrections with Joe Albaugh, whether or not he's going to be rehired. And I think maybe even more pressing right now is the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services with Terry White. You know, I think the the, the sense around uh, the, the insiders there is that Terry White's job uh, is safe at least until the opioid trial is over. You know, you know she is going to be a key component to the op- opioid litigation that's taking place down in Cleveland County right now. And if you know there, you know there, I think there's a, a uh, an unwillingness to upset that. But I also think that there's a case to be made that the government that the governor could send uh, you know, a signal uh, in that case uh, by a casting a vote of confidence towards Terry White now uh, and and saying, you know, I'm going to rehire this person so that, you know, her testimony and her involvement in that trial isn't clouded with any sense of is she going to be the the commissioner moving forward or, you know, can she be impeached because she's uh, not impeached uh, in the political sense, but impeached on the stand as somebody who doesn't have the confidence of the of the governor uh, and his staff. And I don't think that that's the case. And so I think sending that signal now uh, could be something that the governor could do to weigh in and say, you know, we have full faith and confidence in Terry White and, you know, especially moving forward with this opioid litigation and the leadership that she's had on that front. I think as you look at these positions, the ones that have been filled, the ones that remain uh, unfilled, I think what we see with this governor and what was said even when this uh, uh, appointment was made uh, earlier this week was the fact that the transition team had reached out months ago and said, "Would you be interested? Would you? Would there be any interest at all in taking a look at uh, coming out of the private sector and and taking on this challenge?" So I think there are a lot of conversations clearly that appear to be going on across the board, and I think the governor has made it uh, uh, very clear that he's not going to be rushed. He's going to wait until he finds that person that he believes is best for that position in his administration that fits with his uh, kind of fits with his uh, mindset and where he wants to see everything move uh, in in somewhat of a concerted unified effort and particularly from a cabinet perspective as as they try to integrate all of these agencies and and begin to um, uh, really have the communication effort much more much more out front and concerted 
So I think that uh, I think the the kind of the political dimension and the and the bureaucracy dimension to these appointments, who's been here, how long, and will they stay or will they not? I'm not sure he's heavily influenced by that one way or the other, including with the uh, backdrop of the of the trial even coming into play. So it will be fascinating to see. I think we'll see fairly. I would I would presume that we would see in the next uh, you know few uh, months for sure uh, during this the, during the summer that these folks would all be in place so that they have the fall to really uh, be engaged and have an organizational structure beginning to really uh, ramp up and and be in a good place as we get to the next legislative session this is an interesting one also because uh, I was I remember when Ed Lake was picked to replace Howard Hendricks because of all the situation going on with DHS, the child deaths and everything. And he was picked by a national search mm-hmm. by the committee, the commission, the, the, the Human Rights Commission in, in Oklahoma to to run this. And now we've got instead of a group of people doing a national search to find the right person, it's one person picking one person to run the, the gig. And it's a little bit different. It's, it's, it's a lot more like a, a private sector headhunting search for, you know, for a key figure at a corporation than it is for a government agency. And you know, I think that one of the, the dynamics that's different in that respect is that if you're, if you're Google and you're out trying and you've got headhunters out you know, recruiting people to go into key positions for your organization, boy, you've got a lot of things to offer those people. You know, you got salary, you got perks, you got, you know, you got, you know, all sorts of, you know, things to recruit people to your company. It's really, I mean, especially you think about Joe Albaugh's position uh, at the Department (laughs) of Corrections, Uh, the the director of the Department of Corrections. What are you offering people in the private sector? And even in this instance with the DHS, I, you know, they said that, well, I have a 1% interest. And they said, as long as you have a 1% interest, we're going to come back to you. Um, and it really is difficult to recruit people to these positions. You have to have a real sense of public service. And you have to be in a position where you can step away in many instances because it could be a pay cut. I mean, I, I think Terry White and Joe Albaugh, you know, both of them uh, could probably leave public service and walk into the private sector and see their earning potential increase. I mean, they're in those jobs because they're public servants. And if you're being recruited to these jobs and you say yes, you better have a sense of public service. Right. And well, I think that is the key. I think it is public service. And I think yeah. that I, I think that, that is all, uh, the other element to this is I think that when you have uh, a business a businessman perspective in the governor's chair, you have someone who knows they're coming in for a period of time, going to do the work that they that they are going to try very hard to get done successfully, and then they're going back into the private sector. And I think you have people in some of these positions that are being brought in that look at this as not just I'm going to yeah I'm now going to become uh, a public servant and I'm now going to become uh, an agency head and and be involved in this endeavor. Definitely, but rather for a season and time when they can come in and really make some hopeful seismic changes. And I think that's the, it clearly is the point of view that they're coming in with. Oklahoma City Democratic Representative Shane Stone says he's not seeking re-election. Stone says after getting his master's in public policy, he plans to remain involved in politics, but in a less public manner. He's stepping down after six years in office which seems awfully familiar, former state representative Ryan Kiesel. <laughs> hey, yeah, six was enough. Uh, yeah, it, it was, you know, and, and, you know, thanks to Representative Stone for his service to the people of the south side of Oklahoma City. 
Um, and you know, he's, you know, in terms of filling that seat, it'll probably be a Democrat mm-hmm. that's reelected there. The numbers are really strong. Uh, I, two to one, I, two yeah, to one. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that we'll probably start to hear some names in the next week as people begin to try to, you know, get some, uh, early advantage in fundraising and, and, you know, probably people at knocking doors this summer, uh, to get ready for that democratic primary, because it'll, it'll look like the, the democratic presidential primary, right? <laughs> it could be very crowded. Uh, but you know, six years is, is a, is a long time at the Capitol. And, uh, and I think that you, you learn a lot in six years. Uh, I was, when you're ready to go, uh, you should just follow your gut on that. I followed my gut when I was ready to go. I know a lot of my colleagues that you know, after six years, they said, boy, I kind of feel like I want to do this too, but they stuck around for another two or another four, or in some cases, another six. And almost all of them have later told me that they wish that they would have left whenever they did because they, they left, you know, I left on an, uh, on an up note and, you know, I, I chose my own time to go. You know, I knew that, uh, if I'd stuck around, I was just going to you know, continue to you know do the same things, and I was ready for something new and exciting. And I, I suspect that that's probably the case with Representative Stone. And even two years ago, uh, or actually, it was I guess well, two about two years ago was when uh, the dominoes started falling of all the people who said, "Yeah, I'm not going to see re- seek re-election." Is this the first in impossible dominoes of, of people I, saying, "I I'm, I'm I'm done and let some, someone else take the take the mantle"? I think, given the trend, I think that we sh- we can expect that it will be the first of several. And now the the sequence of how how early these begin to roll out. I mean, right. I think by the fall and certainly by early next year, uh, well before filing. I mean, uh, there's always, uh, wh- whichever party we're talking about, there's always the point of view that no one wants to be kind of left in the lurch with these last minute, you know, filing week mm-hmm. and all of a sudden an incumbent's not running and, and whichever party is in yeah. question <laughs> is scrambling or both parties are scrambling to try to find people in that district to to run. That's never a good scenario. So I think there's, I think there is this uh, expectation as people may begin to think about uh, calling it uh, kind of calling it uh, quits earlier rather mm-hmm. than going uh, you know going for another uh, uh, another uh, re-election campaign that that will happen soon enough that will as as Ryan's right. I think we'll expect this floodgate now to start uh, uh, in any district where it's, if you've got two to one Democrat district, it's a district that I think we're going to see a lot of activity on the Democrat side, but it will be an open seat at that point. So the Republicans clearly will uh, take a look at it and see if they can recruit a good, ca- good candidate to be in the mix in, in that race. So it, it it's kind of the setup now as we begin to think about next year. It's not just about a presidential year, but it's about uh, a legislative legislative year and a lot of campaigns that we'll be talking about. And Representative Stone, you know, really young. I mean, he's in, in his mid-20s. 26, yeah, 26. mid-20s. I mean, so, you know, he's, uh, you know, I, I retired at the ripe old age of 30. Uh, and, yeah, so he's retiring in his mid, mid-20s mid from the legislature, and he's yeah. got a tremendous amount of experience Well, out let's there. remember, he can come back at some That's point. That's right. you got I mean, six years he's, of eligibility. He, he's not, he's not uh, precluded from being able to come back in some future And, of course, time. if laws change, there was, there was a law, this our bill this year to increase that amount on, on term on uh, senators and, and representatives, how much time they could spend. So hey, it might be even longer. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, and I, and I'm guessing that also it gives him a chance since he's still going to be there for at least another year and a half because he's filling out his term that did kind of an announcement to fellow uh, employers. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be out in the job market. Well, that's just it. I mean, you went, you know, if you look at, uh, the age range of a lot of folks at the Capitol, you know, for the longest time, it was something that people did at the end of their career, uh, mm-hmm. or that they did and they already had an established career. And so when, if they 
left the legislature, they went back to something. You know, I was in law school when I got elected. And, you know, so being able to, to build a career and build a, a professional life outside of the Capitol, you know, so that whenever you leave, you've got the ability to you know, you make some money and, and uh, you know, pay your mortgage. And those, <laughs> those are important things. And when you're in your mid-20s, you know, this is an opportunity for Representative Stone to walk out and build a career. He's got a new degree and, you know, his education is completed. He can get out and, and, and establish himself in a way that he probably hasn't had a chance to do up until this point. It's already a pretty strong resume. Yeah. Right. And, and a lot of these lawmakers, I think, going in with this expectation that this is a part-time, this is a part-time job yeah. uh, and that, it, that, that they're going to have much more flexibility in terms of being able to maintain uh, their, their career path, their job, whatever else they're doing. And they quickly, oftentimes I hear this, that they, they never realized how much time. It's not just the legislative session. It's, it's, it's year long mm-hmm. in terms of what they need to be involved in and back in their district as well as committee work and other things uh, at the Capitol. So uh, while while their pay is a uh, is a salary that many can't certainly uh, live on uh, I- exclusively, I mean, depending, uh, it is it is something that I think uh, that we're seeing more and more of, and particularly with these ones that come in young. You're right. I mean, they have a career ahead of them. So you know, at what point do we do we do we take the best earning years and uh, and have that exclusively public service, or do we do a combination? And I think that's what we're seeing with representatives. Stone. And Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.